The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. We'll, we'll spend a little bit of time on that Deuteronomy 24 passage a little bit later. Fear not. Fear not. But our New Testament passage today is found in uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another... She commits adultery. This is God's word. It is true. Let's pray once more. Lord, teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom, to the right fear of you, Lord, and to the true following of the one sent to us, Jesus Christ. Would you disciple us in the classroom of life, Lord, and in your school of discipleship, we pray. Speak, O Lord, in and through Christ this morning. Amen. Have you ever started something and thought, this is not what I signed up for? Perhaps it was a job, a college degree, a project with a friend, a Lego set with your child, a 20-hour vacation in the car where you wanted to go on vacation. Maybe it was to play with a friend who isn't always so nice to you. This is not what I said yes in the summer of 2008, I arrived in South Carolina uh, for, a, for 10 weeks with 60 students to do a evangelism and discipleship training. Now, if you're not familiar with the word discipleship, it's kind of a Christian-y word, it means simply this, learning how to be a disciple of Jesus, learning how to follow, obey, and deepen your faith in Christ. Now, on this trip, we students, we had to work jobs in the community we spent our evenings and weekends studying the Bible and fellowship uh, and, as I like to say, telling drunk kids and uh, backslidden Southern Baptists about Jesus on the beach. That's much of what we did. And I was there to learn how to be a disciple of Jesus, or so I thought. And then I met Teresa, my boss at the Bolanos grocery store. Teresa was a 50-something, five-foot-nothing fireball from the South. And she cared about the produce, let me tell you. In the first two days with Teresa, I was convinced that I had misheard God and I should go to the place where Christian chicken is sold and maybe they'd still hire me. That's Chick-fil-A. Coming to a city near you, right? It's going to be here soon. Amen. Praise God. He loves us. He loves us. But I thought with Teresa, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. And yet Christ had enrolled me in his school of discipleship, in his classroom of life. 
I had a humbling but amazing summer with Teresa. I learned to follow her lead in the produce. I listened to her stories. I shared Christ with her by God's grace and got a chance to pray with her. What a gift. But isn't life full of things that we just didn't sign up for? Classes we didn't enroll in, right? I wanted an education, but not that teacher, right? I wanted a job, but not these hours, these customers, these coworkers. I wanted friends, but not someone who hurts my feelings sometimes or breaks my things. I wanted a healthy body, not one that aches or feels sick all the time. I wanted to be a parent, but I didn't sign up for this particular sin in my child. I wanted a wedding. I wanted a marriage, but I didn't sign up marrying a sinner. Jesus' discipling of us happens in the classroom of life. It's where he does it. He disciplines and disciples, teaches us in the classroom of life, in our normal responsibilities, our ordinary relationships. And considering our text today, we'll get to it in the ordinary school of marriage as well. And so often we come to Jesus not with tender hearts saying, you are the Christ, disciple me as you will. But more often we come with hard hearts. I'll stick around for a bit, just just. Let me know what's in it for me, Jesus. Perhaps we come to disprove his words or his relevance. Perhaps we come to check off that religion box. Perhaps we come looking to test Jesus. Are you really who you say you are? Are you really the Lord and Savior of the world? Do you really care about me? The classrooms of my life are filled with a lot of pain and confusion. I didn't sign up for this, right? See, the text today, while in the context of divorce and marriage, it's still broadly teaching us this, that God intends to disciple you in the classroom of life. God intends to disciple you in the classroom of life. So what do we do? We come with a tender heart. We embrace his school of discipleship, doing even so in marriage. Now, as a recap of Mark, if you're walking in here fresh as a visitor, um, the book of Mark is about an unexpected Christ, a king, Jesus, okay, and his kingdom. And Mark traces the path of Jesus to the cross, to the grave, and then and it tells us how Jesus disciples people, right? All along, he's teaching them about what his kingdom values, what his kingdom is about, and how you live within it. So look with me at verse 1. You'll notice this, much to the chagrin of the teachers of the day, Jesus drew crowds wherever he went. They came to him with all sorts of intentions. Some came with tender hearts, ready to be shaped, right, ready to follow Jesus. But typically, many came with hearts ready to overthrow Rome, yes and amen, right, hoping Jesus was preparing a revolution. Others came with hearts that just wanted healing and to go on their own way. Jesus is just a means to an end. Still others came hoping to expose Jesus. He's not the Christ. He's not from God. Right? Verse 2 shows us that this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're coming to test Jesus. Now, they don't actually care about divorce. The word test here means to catch one unguarded. Right? They want to expose Jesus, delegitimize his ministry, and exalt themselves. That's, where, that's the heart they come with. But verse 3, Jesus knows what they're doing, 
right? And he points to Moses. He doubles down. He says, what did Moses command you? Their response refers to Deuteronomy 24, what we read earlier. But notice Jesus' response. It might seem odd, right? He says, because of the hardness of your hearts. Your hearts. Jesus is revealing in this text, simply underlying all of it, God cares about the heart we come with. He cares about the heart that we come with. They were hard-hearted back then, right, in Deuteronomy, and they're hard-hearted there in the text in the Pharisees, and we too are hard-hearted. And he's exposing the significance of the hearts that we come with to God. And so hard-heartedness, what is this? What are we talking about here? So in the biblical sense, the heart is the very center. It's the center of who you are, right? Your thoughts, feelings, motivations, longings, that's you. That's what the heart is. And hard means hard, dry. It means uh, unfeeling, unimpressionable, right? You imagine a ball of Play-Doh being left out overnight, right? You throw that at the wall, it's going through it. It's hard. I may have had that experience. But in truth, the Pharisees and anyone in the crowd who comes to Jesus with their own self-driven influences, or intentions rather, they are coming hard-hearted to some degree, right? They already have their mind made up of why they're coming to this Jesus. So the question for you and me as we read this text initially is, what kind of heart do you come with to this Jesus? There, uh, There once was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, right? Amazing. And he said, this is the greatest carrot I'll ever grow. And so he gave it to his king because he loved him and respected him. And the king discerned the man's heart and said, you are a good steward. Here, take all of my gardens and garden them. Well, there was a nobleman nearby who witnessed this and thought, if this is what a guy gets for giving a carrot, what if he gives something even better? The next day, the nobleman brought his best stallion and said, this is the greatest horse I'll ever breed. And here it is for you, my king. Well, the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and then dismissed the man. The man was confused, and so the king said, you see, that gardener, he gave me a carrot, but you, you gave yourself a horse. See, the gardener had a tender heart loving and following this king. But the nobleman had a heart already coming set with his own intentions, right? To love himself. The king was only a means to an end, to get what he wanted. See, much of the crowds and the Pharisees had hard hearts coming not to be discipled by Jesus, but to use him as a means to an end, right? Jesus says difficult things like, uh, or when Jesus says difficult things, we often hear on their lips, you, if you read John 6, you'd, you'd see this, we didn't enroll in this class. <laughs> what are you talking about, Jesus? Right? They are not tender-hearted, not impressionable, like fresh Play-Doh out of a can in Jesus' hands. So again, we ask, what kind of heart, what kind of heart do you come to Jesus with this morning? We need to ask God, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to discern our hearts as we come to Jesus. Right? Is it, is it hard? Is it, is it unable to be moved by the word preached, sung, read, or tasted in the Lord's Supper? 
Is your heart bent on self-fulfillment or perceived self-flourishing? Western culture has taught us that life is no classroom. No, life is about being happy, right? I'll come to you, Jesus, if you make me happy. Is your heart set on just checking that religion box? Right? I come to Jesus, I come to church to get a little religion, to say the stuff, eat the supper, check the box. Is your heart set upon discounting the words of Jesus, the scriptures, right? You want it to say or mean something else, so you might get what you want, what I want. See, the Pharisees do this all the time, right? They use their knowledge of the scripture not to esteem God. They're not asking this question because they care. No, they want to exalt themselves to get what they want. Jesus lesser, them greater. Perhaps a sign that you come to Jesus with a hard heart is that when the classrooms of life get difficult, right, job, parenting, friendships, body, marriage, the first words out of your mouth are, are complaints, and you're looking, where's the, where's the exit sign? Ask the Spirit this morning to help you discern what kind of heart you're coming with. Is it tender? Is it moldable? Is it hard? But after this, ask God to give you a tender heart, ready to be discipled by him, the living Christ. Now, when I say tender heart, it doesn't mean that you're soft on your own sin or other sin, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that you come to Jesus and you say, however you wish to disciple me, right? To shape me, mold me, form me. Have your way with your words and your hands in my life. One way you might practice this, this growing of a tender heart, and one way that would be in line, even with the season that we're having at All Saints, of being a community that learns to pray. To learn to pray daily. Maybe just the next week, just try it. The Lord's Prayer. We know that one verbatim. But after you pray it, stop. Just focus on one line in that prayer and talk to God about it. Right? Jesus gives us words to talk back to our Father, and he loves, just like a father when he hears the words from his child that he's taught them, God loves to hear his words on our lips. And as we pray them back to God, he makes our hearts tender to him. It's one application to grow a tender heart. Well, God indeed intends to disciple you in the classroom of life. And so we come with a tender heart. But two, our second point, is we embrace his school of discipleship. We embrace where he's teaching us. So as, as a recap, right, we covered verse 2, the Pharisees seek to expose Jesus. He says, what did Moses command you? Moses allowed a husband to write a certificate of divorce. In verse 4, Jesus' Jesus's reply is that Moses wrote this. Why? Because of the hardness of hearts, or in other words, in that day, because of sinful and unsanctioned divorce. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is actually dealing with. We'll come back to that in point 3, but notice what Jesus does. He doesn't lay out, okay, here's the manual. Here's the 10 steps, how you know what to do with divorce. No, he pivots to Genesis 1 and 2. And he talks about God's intention for marriage from the beginning. He says it was a gift to a male and a female, right? It was a, a gift that they would have fruitful, unified intimacy all their days in marriage. Look at verse 7. We see fruitful, unified intimacy. It says, a holding fast. Verse 7, two, becoming one flesh, intimacy emotionally, spiritually, physically. 
And the implied fruit of such intimacy is even to be productive, fruitful in their own personal lives, right? Growth in their personal lives and what God has called them to. And even fruitful if God should will it in children. That's part of what we see in Genesis. And it's true at times God doesn't give the gift of children. At times moms and dads need to think through, can I provide physically, emotionally, spiritually for one more, right? These things are things you actually must weigh. First Timothy 5 addresses this to some degree if you're unable to provide for your children. It says you're worse than an unbeliever. But this doesn't change that marriage is a unified, intimate covenant that isn't primarily about more income. It isn't about me. It's not even about just only companionship, which is a beautiful piece in it. But it's about faithfulness. And it's about fruitfulness. In verse 8, Jesus shows that marriage is also permanent. It's not the government that marries you. Nope. They don't get to decide what marriage is. It's not even your promises necessarily. No, marriage is what God does in a worship service of a wedding. It's what God's doing. What God has done, let man not separate. Right? God's intention for the first building block of society with humans, get this, that first building block of marriage is this fruitful, unified, intimate, permanent covenant. He's building a society. That's the first part. And in truth for us, we live in a world where that covenant is only ever and always filled with two sinned against sinners, right? Now, in our third point, we'll, we'll go further into the debate about a divorce, or just at least what, what is happening in the context of their day. But I want us to grasp actually a broader principle here, both here in this passage, but also just Mark 10 as a whole. Mark 10 implicitly emphasizes a number of ordinary, everyday things, like marriage, and that these are how, these are where Jesus disciples you. So in Mark 10 alone, and we'll hear about this in coming weeks, he shows he's discipling them in their understandings about marriage, about dealing with kids, and handling possessions, working your job, parenting big ones or little ones. And what this shows us in Mark 10 broadly is that all of our circumstances, responsibilities, and our relationships are the classrooms of Christ. They're the classrooms where Christ is discipling us, whether we think we signed up for it or not. And in truth, our hardened hearts are more willing to learn in some places and not so willing to learn in other places to be discipled by him. As an example, some years back, Lindsay and I, uh, we moved to the Middle East. We're expecting Jesus' school of discipleship to be one of persecution for our faith. But in truth, we had incredibly warm relationships with all of our Muslim friends, and persecution was rare due to our faith. It was normally because we were Americans and always messing around around there. What we hadn't signed up for, though, the school we didn't enroll in, was the chaos of acquiring residency permits. It's this never-ending bureaucracy, unspecified instructions, and always, always, always broken government websites, Right? And in truth, after you did all of it, in the end, it just depended on who you sat across from, who was assessing your residency permit application. I kid you not, our first year we were approved solely because we smiled a lot. If you've met my wife, she smiles a lot, and and she taught me how. So we, we got it done, and God was certainly in it. But the amount of anger, ornery mornings, confused late evenings, and frustrated prayers revealed one big thing. 
We did not enroll in this school. Jesus, I don't want to be discipled in your school of residency permit discipleship. No, thank you. Friends, we need to establish that our ordinary, our everyday life circumstances are the classroom of Christ, right? You are in the school of discipleship every day, all day long. He's discipling you there. Perhaps we want to be discipled in the quiet communion with the Father like Jesus, right? We read that and we're like, that sounds so nice. He's off. He's praying quietly, right? No, no screaming children, no incompetent coworkers or overbearing bosses, right? No hurt or sinful neighbors needing us. Perhaps many of us want to be discipled over coffee or a beer with a good friend. I know I do. Maybe we want to go on the retreat or conference for Jesus to really meet us and disciple us there. But Jesus disciples you in the ordinary stuff. Like caring for sick kids, like learning boundaries at work, and learning to ask good questions and show genuine interest in one another, and in inviting lonely church members or neighbors into your home, or in driving on 172 behind a left-lane camper. He's discipling you there. I know he's discipling you there. But what classrooms in life is Jesus trying to disciple you in that you are looking for the exit sign? Where is it? Get me out. Classes where you see them as a nuisance, something to just get done and out of the way or to avoid. It might be a body that hurts, that aches relentlessly, a stomach that never settles, it's constant headaches perhaps. Maybe it's the loss of a source of income or the reality that we're all becoming poorer <laughs> with inflation or rising gas prices. Maybe a class that Christ is discipling us in. Maybe it's with parents who want to obey you, especially in those moments where you don't really want to obey. An application for us is this. Reflect and consider, what are the classrooms Jesus has me in? Where has he enrolled me that I just don't pay attention to or don't really care about, but it's there. It's part of my life. Ask God for the grace to receive those schools of discipleship by faith and ask for his loving and sanctifying discipleship in them. And even, perhaps an application, by God's grace, you can feel thankfulness, even in the hardest and unhappiest of places. I'm not sanctioning sin done unto you or sin that you do, but I'm saying that all of your life circumstances, responsibilities, relationships, they're never irredeemable. In the darkest moment of history, God hung on a cross. He lay dead in a grave. All of your classrooms are not darker than that. And that ended with victory and life eternal offered to you. All of your circumstances are redeemable. And he disciples us through them. So as an application, reflect today, this week, reflect and consider what are these classrooms? And by his grace, embrace those schools. Ask for his mercy to disciple you in those places you didn't want to enroll in, but you already are. For our third point, we, uh, we dial it in to look at the school of discipleship in and about marriage. Now, whether you're a child, a single adult, an experienced married couple, this is for you. This is for me. Don't tune out. In Jesus' day, everyone knew divorce was permissible. Everyone did. New divorce was permissible. So their question seems a bit interesting, right? But the real debate 
was about the grounds of divorce, the reason that was legitimate. And particularly for Jews, one word was really important, indecency. What does indecency mean? Earlier in Deuteronomy 24, it mentioned that a man can divorce his wife over indecency. Now, before we address that, we need to make clear something about Deuteronomy 24. It's not condoning divorce. It's not saying, here's the path forward, guys. Here you go. It might seem that way at first, but Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus is alluding to this in verse 5, Deuteronomy 24 is written to prevent, to hinder divorces, hasty divorces, unsanctioned sinful divorces by requiring legitimate reasoning in writing. It was meant to actually protect women, to prohibit men from saying, I'm going to discard you like trash and come back for you later on. No, you're not. No, the certificate of divorce was actually a means of dignifying a woman, enabling her to actually remarry and to say, this person can't, can't take advantage of you anymore. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is actually dealing with. That's what Moses is speaking to, because that's what's happening. Now, even in Jesus' day, though, some people are twisting that word of indecency. There was a school of thought that said, well, indecency means anything a guy wants, right? Seems self-serving for that school, perhaps. But there was another school that said, no, no, indecency only relates to adultery. It only relates to adultery. And they also believed it always required, required a divorce. It wasn't an option. But in Matthew 5 and 19, that's where Jesus deals with this in, in the language of exception a bit more. Jesus agrees in principle that divorce and remarriage are, are allowed or permissible in cases of adultery. But Jesus never requires divorce. No. Forgiveness is always possible. In the book of Mark, Jesus' words are focused on the positive intention. It's the positive intention rather than the negative exception. That's what you see in Mark. And for this reason, this sermon, we can't, we can't do the deep dive, right, into every, every little path, every question about divorce and whatnot. But I realize even as we pull out this topic, there is real pain, there's real hurt, there's real questions, families torn apart, your sin, my sin, it's there. There's questions about Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, which deals with desertion uh, by a non-Christian spouse. But in surfacing this topic, I'd, I'd want to not leave you unshepherded. I want to at least offer two other things for, for you. You can go to two places for questions you might have that can't be answered here right now. One, your pastors, elders, or a wise and godly woman in this congregation can be asked. It's a great place to go and ask. Tell me more about this topic. Or two, there was a report done, a fantastic report done by our denomination some years ago that deals with, with just all the different minutiae and conversation and nuance in this, in this topic. I'd be happy to give it to you. So there's two places to go, or if you have other questions, please ask. As I read through marriage or thought about this this week, I, I realized, and maybe you've noticed this, that most love stories, Disney films, rom-coms, rom-droms, right? They all, that's romantic dramas. I had to look it up. They usually end with a man and woman finally coming together, getting married, and living what? Yeah, happily ever after. It's funny that these movies don't end like 10 or 30 years down the road, right? Like, it's always at the wedding. It may be because uh, marriage is more like what Joyce Brothers says. She said, my husband and I never considered divorce. Murder sometimes, but never divorce. 
The wedding is where these stories end, and they fail to say this, that marriage is no joke class. They fail to say this. Marriage is where you will likely sin more and be sinned against more than anywhere else. Get two sinners together. What happens? We've witnessed marriages fall apart. Maybe it was your own. If you're still married, maybe you've had those seasons of feeling like your marriage is falling apart. And considering this hard reality, Mark's account of Jesus' black and white words sound really bigoted. They did then, and they do still now today. He wasn't saying something that was kosher in that time. Jesus, where are my exceptions? Where is the fine print? How do I get out? Part of the reason why marriage is so important and that its, and that its aim needs to be addressed, why Jesus hits its aim in Genesis is because ultimately marriage, the institution of it, is meant to reflect God's relationship with who? You, with the church, with his people. In Isaiah 54, the Lord says, For your maker Israel is your husband. The book of Hosea is about God like a husband redeeming his unfaithful bride. In the New Testament, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 compare husbands' wives to Christ in the church. At the end of time, the consummation of all things, or restoration as we talk about in our last banner on the end there. When Jesus returns, what's one of the major things that will happen? A wedding and a wedding feast. That's what's going to happen. In in Revelation 21, the angel says to John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's the church in the New Jerusalem coming down. It's a wedding feast. Marriage is pointing to that, to a fulfillment there. You see, Genesis and Revelation, creation and consummation are bookended with weddings and marriages. Right? This arc tells us that the institution of marriage is ultimately pointing somewhere or to someone. It's to God and his relationship with his redeemed people. Part of the school of discipleship of marriage is making it less about me, less about my self-fulfillment. In marriage, you love your wife, your husband. Why? Because you long to honor God. And, you certainly made promises to, but and, you want to speak a truth about what marriage is. You want to tell the truth about what marriage is, the institution from creation to consummation that points to God's relationship with his people. You see, Christ, he doesn't abandon, he doesn't cheat on, he doesn't abuse or leave his bride. He lays his life down for her. And a sanctified bride by Christ, she does not run from him, does not manipulate him, does not tear him down, but gives herself willingly to him. Our marriages are defined at creation in their aim and their ultimate fulfillment at the consummation, the end of all things, the wedding feast of the Lamb. See, Jesus' work on the cross to die for us sinners and his resurrection and his present sanctifying of us in the classrooms of life, in the school of discipleship, even in marriage, is for what? It's aimed at presenting you, us, holy as a bride, to be married to our Lord forever as his people. That's what the 
marriage institution is pointing at. This is why Jesus is pointing out, don't you know, it's aim back in Genesis 1 and 2. God being with his people, two becoming one. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this to our marriage? Just a few simple prayers as application. Husbands and wives, husbands and wives, we pray this. God, disciple me and my marriage. God, disciple me and my marriage so that it tells the truth about what you intended from creation to consummation. It tells the truth about what you're saying about you as our husband and we as your people. And give us the grace to do it. (laughs) Give us the grace in your spirit to do it. It may be, husbands and wives, that today or in the coming week, you need to have a confession session, right? When you sit down and tell one another, I've avoided, I've run from, I've lost sight of what marriage is even about, what this institution is for. It's to be discipled by Christ, and it points at what we've talked about. You can pray together for a fruitful, unified, intimate, permanent covenant. Until death do you part, or until that wedding feast of the Lamb comes and kicks off. If you're a child or a teen, you can pray for mom and dad. They need it. They know they need it. I need it. Pray for them in their marriage. If you're a single adult longing to be married, certainly still pray for your parents, but pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ here who you are united to. Pray for their marriages. And then pray that God would instill in you a clarity of why you get married. That God would disciple you now to be ready for the school of discipleship that is marriage. And perhaps you're single and hope to stay so you too can join in on the prayers can join in on the prayers and praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ still, and that God would continue to disciple you wherever he takes you, whatever he does in your life. To close, uh, in January of 2010, excuse me, I, uh, I spent a month praying if I should marry a beauty from South Dakota named Lindsay. A few days before the month was over, uh, Lindsay called and said, I need to tell you something. I braced myself. Here's the sign, right? She said, I read your testimony. And I should say, I did get permission to share this story. <laughs> that would be bad if I didn't write in about unity and marriage and such. And I did. But she said to me, I read your testimony. It doesn't sound so bad, does it? But what Lindsay meant was that months before when we had been together, I had left my email open on her computer. And she had seen an email that said something like my story. This wouldn't be a big deal, but this was a testimony that I had shared at a men's conference of all the the deep, dark, scary sin and shame of my life. Things that I didn't know how to talk to her about it, or maybe I never would. I don't know. But I was devastated. This was the sign. It's over. I prayed for a month. Thanks, Lord. But I remember calling my older brother and saying, what should I do? And he said, let me get this right. So she read your story months ago. She's loved you and been gracious to you for however many months now, right? Yeah. He said, you fool. (laughs) Marry the woman. Marry the girl. Lindsay's a beautiful picture here of what? Like Lindsay, for me, Christ doesn't read your life stories. He doesn't read your life stories and turn tail and run. No. 
You see, Christ knows the depths of your sin. He knows the cement-like nature of your dead heart before he gives you faith, of your hard heart even today. Christ knows it, sees it. And he died while it was still like that. And he rose again for you who believe, and guess what? He does not expel you from his school of discipleship. No, you can't get expelled, friends. He orders your life with classes that you didn't know you even signed up for, and he continues to lovingly, caringly disciple you for all your life in all those ordinary ways. Until when? Until the wedding feast of the Lamb, the fulfillment of marriage. By the grace of God and the Spirit within you, come to Jesus with a tender heart, ready to be shaped by his words and his hands. Embrace the schools of discipleship of all your circumstances that Christ has put you in. And notably, do so in the glorious institution that is marriage. The institution that will find its fulfillment on the day when we, we, church, will be purified, a holy bride, at the wedding feast of the Lamb with our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what do we bring to this table but dead hearts? What do we bring, even as people who have been brought to life in Christ, but hard hearts so often? You must do it all. You must initiate and give us tender hearts. You must mold us in each classroom, in each school of discipleship that you have placed us within. Oh, give us tender hearts that we'd embrace these schools, especially in the glorious and oh-so-difficult institution that is marriage. Bless us, Lord, today by your Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.